Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. On October 2nd, Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to fill out paperwork so that he could get married. His fiance waited outside, but the workday ended and Khashoggi never came out. Turkish sources have been slowly leaking the horrifying details of what they say was a brutal murder ordered by the Saudi Arabian government. Specifically, the young, charismatic crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS. Khashoggi was a permanent U.S. resident, a contributor to the Washington Post, a patriotic Saudi, and a relatively gentle critic of MBS's regime. Joining us to discuss this grisly affair and the possible political fallout is Hadi Ammer, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution and a former senior diplomat in the Obama State Department. With over three decades of diplomatic experience representing the U.S. in the Middle East, countering extremism, and promoting human rights and economic development, I can think of few experts better positioned than Hattie to explain the region and U.S. policy towards it. Hattie, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Let's begin at the beginning. Who was Jamal Khashoggi? That's a, that's a great question. Um, J- Jamal, um, you know, for, first of all, if, if what is alleged and reported happened to Jamal, it just is a tragedy um, for him uh, and his family. And also, I would say, for Saudi Arabia. Um, but we can get into that later. What, what I'll say now is that, you know, J- Jamal was a Saudi journalist. He's, one, he's someone who wanted to see his country reform uh, and evolve and develop. Um, you know, he was neither a, a, a paragon of liberalism, a paragon of conservatism, but he was a someone who deeply believed in uh, the rule of law, logic, uh, and and sort of freedom of speech. And so those are themes that he developed throughout his work um, uh, over the years. And you know, he's someone as I've I've been sort of privileged to know a, a bit uh, for fifteen to twenty years now. Right, and you are not just someone who has kind of casually run in the same circles with Jamal, but you've actually worked on a couple of projects with him. You've, you've known him over the years. That, that's right. So Jamal, Jamal was one of my first uh, newspaper editors when I sought to write uh, op-eds um, uh, for a Saudi audience. When he was editor of the leading Saudi English language newspaper, I would publish through him. I got, got to know him that way. And then sub- subsequently uh, worked with him uh, and with the AJC's uh, Rabbi Rosen on a project after 9-11 on uh, Islamic world Western relations. And that's how I got to know him a bit better. Based on what I've read about Jamal, it sounds like, yes, he was, you know, perhaps a, a critic. You know, there's no two ways around it. Maybe relatively less critical or, or more gentle criticism of Mohammed bin Salman of MBS. But it almost doesn't compute. You know, why did he become a target? 
You know, again, this is such a tra- if if what is alleged hap- indeed happened, it's such a tragedy. Again, first and foremost for Jamal and his family, and, and also for um, Saudi Arabia. Um, look, I think it's it's unfortunate, but um, in this day and age, um, there's just increasing um, intolerance for dissent. And we see that in the United States with our own president's attacks on journalists. We see that in Russia um, where, and, and in many places around the world where dissenters are murdered. And so um, I think, unfortunately, we live in a time when the United States is no longer the shining city on the hill, the paragon of freedom of speech and freedom uh, that it once was. And so, you know, I, I think it's making it easier for those around the world who want, who want to silence dissent to do so. Hattie, you're being very careful to keep saying, you know, if what has been reported is true. And so I want to kind of dive into that a little bit. What is it that we know for certain right now about the fate of Jamal Khashoggi? Look, I mean, I'm no longer um, in the U.S. government. I don't have access to intelligence services, you know, any longer. And there's certainly no countervailing evidence to the contrary that Jamal is alive. Saudi Arabia has every interest in, if if Jamal is alive and well and smiling somewhere, they have every interest in um, uh, uh, producing him. Uh, They have not. Um, there, there There is no evidence all the evidence points to that what we think happened happened. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a real, again, it's just, it's a real, it's a real tragedy. What we know is that we went into the Saudi consulate and we don't know that if he left, what we know is, um, there's been a huge, uh, you know, we, we know Turkey states that, you know, a team of 15 Saudis came to, you know, Istanbul to that seemingly perpetrate a certain act. And so, um, you know, it's just, it, it, it's just, it's so tough. It's, it's, it's such a tough situation. Um, and again, without access to intelligence, I don't want to, you know, I, I just don't want to state things as facts. That's completely understandable. There, there are a lot of people, though, you know, perhaps President Trump, uh, foremost among them, who have been kind of casting doubt on Turkey's story. Is there reason to doubt Turkey? Well, um, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not casting any doubt on this, the story that's emerging to Turkey. Um, but it is important to note that Turkey and Saudi Arabia are rivals. It is important to note that, you know, Turkey uh, and the U.S. have not been getting along, and this is a way um, f- for them to to get along. So while I I don't doubt the story, there's been no evidence to the contrary, and I, and I think there should be, uh, unless there is evidence to the contrary, it seems like what happened did happen. But that said, it is important to know that Turkey um, has something to gain through this, which is the the the, the rejuvenation of its image. Um, in the United States, uh, a restoration of uh, 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 relations with Congress. You know, let's not forget, Turkey is no friend to journalists. Turkey is no friend to freedom either. Freedom of speech, I should say. 
Hattie, President Trump and Jared Kushner have had this bear hug for MBS over the past couple of years since the Trump administration began. And so I think the reaction among Republicans on Capitol Hill to this whole incident has been surprising. Lindsey Graham, who's kind of a Republican foreign policy thought leader and and certainly a close ally of the president, has said that he thinks MBS, quote, has got to go um, and that he will push the Senate to, quote, sanction the hell out of Saudi Arabia. But this is where I really become a little bit puzzled because this is the same MBS who kidnapped the prime minister of Lebanon, who locked up dozens of members of his own family, and who has been waging a brutal war in Yemen, first obviously as defense minister and now as crown prince. Why is it this story that is breaking through? You know, you, you, um, you took the words out of my mouth. Um, so I, I was going to just go through that, that list, right? <laughs> so, um, and I should also add, it's not just, um, it's not just Lindsey Graham, Patrick Leahy came out with a, you know, a written statement, uh, over the last 24 hours, basically saying more or less the same thing. It's not clear why this was the straw that broke the camel's back because you're right. There's been a series of bad behavior, There's been a war in Yemen that's just been perpetuated, causing starvation of potentially millions, thousands and thousands of deaths. The the kidnapping of the Lebanese prime minister, who I should point out is also a dual citizen of Saudi Arabia. Uh, And then the release and resignation and reinstate, you know, a a fruitless spat with Canada, Uh, a blockade of Qatar, which which U.S., uh, other than the president, has, has thought was unwise. Why was this the straw that broke the camel's back? I can't say for sure, but here's what I think. I think when you, when people are suspicious of you and you spend, make a huge effort to renovate your image in Washington and Silicon Valley and New York, and you present yourself as a reformer uh, and you present yourself as a modernizer and you, you know, make really a series of really positive changes in Saudi Arabia, which they've done, you know, allowing women to drive, nurturing research centers, um, doing all, all sorts of great policy decisions. When you simultaneously, in parallel to that, uh, uh, undertake an act that is um, so plain and simple to understand, it makes those who kind of joined you, who cheered you, who gave you the benefit of doubt, it makes them feel like suckers. Right, it makes them feel feel like they've been had, and so while they may have been skeptical or neutral and shifted to a positive position, as positive as they were in recent months, they, they're going to go that negative, that you know, negative on the other side because they feel like they've been had. Uh, they feel like they're kind of friars. <laughs> Hattie, you you mentioned um, that this is deeply tragic, not just for Jamal and obviously for his family and and those who who knew him and, and loved him, but it's tragic for Saudi Arabia. Our friend Ambassador Dan Shapiro wrote a piece in Haaretz this week where he argued that with this, you know, really horrific misstep 
MBS has come dangerously close to invalidating himself as a Western ally. Um, and Shapiro kind of, he goes on, he worries that this whole saga is going to cause people to take their eye off Iran and really splinter focus in the region into this debate over, well, is Iran worse or is Saudi Arabia worse? When really we should be walking and chewing gum at the same time. We should be saying, you know, we need to do everything possible to check Iran's nuclear ambitions and adventurism in the region and bad actions around the world. And we should also be condemning Saudi Arabia as necessary. What do you think of Shapiro's point? Is, is he right that there are these these kind of broader, very dangerous ramifications? I think there are. Um, I think the president of the United States and Jared Kushner gave, as, you, as I think you said, a big bear hug to uh, uh, the Saudi leadership. Um, they've centered their entire Middle East strategy when it comes to Iran, when it comes to Israel-Palestine, uh, uh, on Israeli-Palestinian issues, I should say, uh, uh, around Saudi Arabia. Um, and look, I, I, I think it, it is going to, as Dan points out, I think it is going to be a challenge. Um, you know, th- that said, right, you know, the United States should be a, a big enough, broad enough, smart enough country that it can have a more sophisticated policy than the one that we've seen, right? I think it, it, it was highly risky for this president, this uh, uh, and his advisors, to center its policies um, uh, in this manner. Let's let's not forget the president's first foreign trip uh, uh, to any country was to Saudi Arabia. He did not meet with civil society. He did not engage with ordinary citizens. He convened uh, a, a gathering of heads of state from the region to speak to them. It sent a message to ordinary citizens that we're going to deal with your leaders, we're not going to deal with you. Let's contrast us with what Barack Obama did. Uh, You mentioned Dan Shapiro. I had the pleasure of working with Dan Shapiro back to 2007 on Barack Obama's, Senator Obama's presidential campaign. And in part of that process, one of the things I I recommended uh, uh, that the president say, and uh, the candidates say, is that, you know, I'm going to make one of my first trips overseas uh, to the Muslim world. Uh, I'll do it in the first 100 days, and I'll, I'm going to meet with civil society. You know, it, it ended up becoming um, something that the president did, and it ended up, I think, transforming the region and, and giving uh, ordinary citizens in the Arab world the hope that they, that they could sort of have their own campaign, like President Obama's, to transform their lives. Trump has decided to deal with a leader, uh, and deal with leaders. And, and I think it, it's going to ultimately prove to be uh, unwise. You brought up the Israeli-Palestinian conflict a moment ago, and there are many who care about the future of that conflict who have begun to imagine that it's not actually that far off that Israel might be able to establish robust ties with Sunni Arab states, including, of course, Saudi Arabia, perhaps first and foremost Saudi Arabia, based on a shared loathing of Iran and shared economic self-interest. These people envision this alliance potentially ultimately laying the foundation for a comprehensive peace accord with the Palestinians kind of down the road you know, deal with the region first and then focus in on the specifics of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There are many who think that this kind of regional agreement is going to be part of the long-awaited Trump administration peace plan. And Prime Minister Netanyahu has also kind of come close to advocating this kind of arrangement. Is something like this, you know, kind of dead in the water at this point? I wouldn't say it's dead in the water. I'd say it it was always a fantasy. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that something like that ever 
could have worked. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. Israel has succeeded beyond its wildest dreams. Its per capita GDP is $40,000 a year. It's accepted by countries around the world. Um, and yes, there are uh, uh, tacit uh, conversations that take place between the Israeli leadership and leaderships of, of many Arab countries. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the, the Palestinian people, you know, their drive for self-determination is what's going to guide the Israeli relationship with the Arab world. You can't, you can't do it. it outside in just won't work here. Um, what could work is inside out and outside in at the same time, right? If there is a credible Israeli-Palestinian peace deal that satisfies the aspirations of the Palestinian people, in that context, there can absolutely be uh, a a strong relationship with the Arab world. And we have the Arab Peace Initiative as, as evidence to that. But to have the relationship without the Palestinian peace deal, I think, does not work. And so um, that's, just, that's just where we are. Um, that's just the reality. Um, and I think, I, I think we need to live in reality and not in fantasy. Right. And, and that addresses kind of the concerns that existed before this incident, that there's always, you know, kind of a glass ceiling to the potential for Israel's relationships with the Arab states as long as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict persists. I guess my question was actually getting to a more elemental point, which is, has Saudi Arabia kind of squandered any ability to lead in the region now? Or is this the kind of thing that really turns our stomachs in the West and people hardly bad an eye in the region? So I, I don't think there will be a, a tremendous change in Saudi's relationship with the UAE or Bahrain or, you know, I, I think all those alliances will, will, will stay as they were. Um, and of course, there's just the tremendous financial uh, power of the country. Um, but yes, it's going to strain relations with the West, uh, with the U.S. and Europe. Um, um, but no, it will not strain its leadership role in the region uh, as much because the battle lines have already been drawn. Uh, countries are already in kind of camps and things are as they are. Uh, this will not change that. This is a region, you know, go look at the Freedom House rankings and you'll see how many countries um, in, in this region you know, have freedom indexes that are, you know, the worst in the world. Um, it, it's, a, it's a sobering exercise to, to do that. You used to help administer USAID, the arm of the State Department yeah. that oversees international development. Um, and the Trump administration recently cut millions of USAID dollars that had been headed to projects in the Palestinian territories. We chatted about that right after it happened with Tamara Kaufman Wittes a few weeks back. I would guess that as as two Obama administration alumni, two Brookings scholars, uh, your viewpoints on it may largely align. But I, I wanted to ask you specifically, there's been this recent development in the realm of U.S. funding for projects in the Palestinian territories. There's this new bill 
the Palestinian Partnership Fund Act, which is being introduced in the House and the Senate by a bipartisan group of actually very influential um, lawmakers. Uh, AJC is supporting the bill because we think that um, this kind of investment, encouraging American investment in Palestinian development and civil society, and especially you know anything that can be done to create economic bridges between Israel and the Palestinians, we think that that is you know something very good for the region. Um, from your or really vast experience uh, in in this kind of work. What do you think about you know this bill in in principle and and also um, you know the the idea of America investment there? I, I think it's a positive bill. I think it's great that you're supporting it. Um, that AJC is supporting it. Um, look, I guess I guess I'd say a couple of things. First, I'd say um, I don't know what Tammy said. Brookings doesn't have you know we're all independent uh, scholars and researchers, but I would say. Yeah, look, the, the, the Trump administration's move to cut assistance hurts the United States, right? Undermining um, assistance to, to refugees, to the poor, to, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole enterprise in the West Bank and Gaza needs as much support as, as it can get. Um, it's not good for Israel, right, that Israel is 20 times richer on a per capita basis than Gaza and, 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 and 11 times richer than the West Bank. You can't have income disparities like that in such a small geography and have it lead to peace and prosperity. It's in everyone's interest that the Palestinian economy flourish. Now, in that context, I, I think, you know, if the United States is not willing to provide, you know, direct assistance to the West Bank and Gaza, which which has long been been viewed in as a national security interest of the United States, then I think that the the, the partnership fund is is um, r- really worthwhile. I think promoting people to people exchanges um, is a great thing to do. I think um, supporting you know the Palestinian technology sector is is a tremendous thing to do, um, and so. Um, I think it's very positive, but I also think it should not be a substitute for the direct assistance that we have been providing over the years, because that direct assistance actually makes a difference. It it boosts the economy. Um, it deals with critical issues like water and electricity and sanitation. Um, and so, you know, I support a, a balanced approach, I think, but but I think this bill is worth worth worthwhile supporting. Let me just draw on your expertise on international development and ask, you know, what are the most significant steps that the U.S. could be taking to help the Palestinians engage in state building and stabilizing their society and and ultimately heading in the direction toward laying the groundwork for uh, the creation of a Palestinian state as part of a two-state solution? Look, we could probably do a whole series of podcasts on this topic, (laughs) but I'll try and condense it into one answer. Look, the Oslo Accords, which were signed 25 years ago, were designed to last about five years. There, um, there's a whole range of issues inside of it that I think um, just just really are not durable and meaningful today. And so, you know, what the what the U.S. can be doing, could be doing, uh, first of all, uh, to be even to be able to do any of that, right? We have to restore uh, relations with the Palestinians. So we've closed you know, the Palestinian mission to the U.S., um, you know, we've done a whole range of things. So we kind of need to undo the damage to restore the relationship. But once that happens, the things, the kind of work that we could be doing are, number one, um, we could do a huge amount of work in the electricity sector in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, the, I think it's in everyone's interest. It's in Israel's interest that Palestinians, 
both in the West Bank and Gaza, have an independent, prosperous, rational um, electricity sector. And they don't because it's been inextricably linked to Israel. There are all kinds of free rider issues where bills are difficult to collect because Israel provides the electricity. But if Palestinians don't pay, then Israel doesn't have an ability to kind of knock on doors and and kind of collect. So there's a whole there's a whole economic efficiency in the electricity sector. Um, there there are similar problems in water. Um, there, so there's a whole range of issues where Palestinian administration could be empowered. Um, that the U.S. can make a difference. There are also huge issues on import and export. There are whole categories of products that can't or are difficult to import and export from the West Bank or Gaza. And I think, um, you know, the U.S. working with Israel and the Palestinians to streamline all of that could make a trans- really a major transformation. Hattie, I want to ask you uh, one last question, and this is really about breaking news. We learned this morning that Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, has effected a change in American diplomatic institutions in Jerusalem. So just to lay the background for our our listeners, um, for as long as I've been aware, the American embassy to Israel has been in Tel Aviv. Uh, Obviously, that changed this year as it was moved to Jerusalem. Um, And there have been two consulates in Jerusalem, one in, in West Jerusalem and one in East Jerusalem. And so this morning, Secretary Pompeo announced that the East Jerusalem consulate would be officially subordinated to the embassy in Jerusalem, which is a downgrade, which is something that may have repercussions. So, you know, first of all, <laughs> did I get that right? Um, and- you, you got it close. So, so <laughs> basically, just to oversimplify to simplify it a little bit further, yeah. um, the, uh, our first, the first U.S. mission in the Holy Land was established in the, in the mid-1800s um, in Jerusalem, which was our, our consulate general in Jerusalem. That was to Ottoman, uh, the Ottoman, right, right. To Ottoman <laughs> Palestine. Um, then after the establishment of Israel, the United States opened a, um, an embassy in uh, Tel Aviv. Um, the United States has long viewed, and still, by the way, continues to view uh, uh, legally, while it views Israel as having a capital in Jerusalem, it still it hasn't changed the, its views on the final status um, uh, of Jerusalem. So it, the U.S. has basically had a consulate in Jerusalem and an embassy in Tel Aviv. What the U.S. then did earlier this year is move the embassy um, to Jerusalem as well. So we had both a consulate and an embassy in Jerusalem. And I think it was only a matter of time. In, in one sense, it made didn't make a lot of sense to have a consulate and an embassy in Jerusalem. But the way things that I, I've, I thought I was going to simplify it. I've made it more complicated. <laughs> Basically, the, the consulate in Jerusalem turned into the de facto uh, a relationship with the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, and, and the embassy in Tel Aviv was the relationship with the Israelis. By putting, by merging those two, those were, and those were separate diplomatic missions. It didn't report one to the other. By merging them to the, together, um, there's a danger that Palestinians will see that as the end of the two-state solution, right? You have two, you have two, two chiefs of mission, one for the Israelis and one for the Palestinians. By eliminating one of them, you're essentially saying to, the, to a Palestinian here, we don't believe in a two-state solution anymore. We believe in one state. And so... You know, I could see I could see many on the left who, you know, you know, don't believe in a two-state solution, or or on the extreme right, 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 to say that's the end of the two-state solution. So there's a danger there, um, and I think there's going to be, as with the case uh, of the 
moving the embassy in the spring, there's going to be uh, backlash. I don't know if it'll, I, I hope it doesn't end up in violent backlash, but it will be, it could very well be backlash on a, on a diplomatic front. And so it, it could pose real challenges um, in the months ahead as the U.S. tries to relate to the Palestinians. But it's, you know, if I were the PLO, I would, I would, I would issue a, a cheeky response, say, dear Donald Trump, thank you for recognizing that Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine. Um, you know, you could, you could see that. Or, or you could see leftist Israelis saying, well, you've killed the two-state solution. So um, uh, I guess that means one state. And then you can see Israelis on the extreme right saying, you see, a two-state solution is no longer possible. Israel has to have preeminence and predominance in the land between the river and the sea. So I think, I, I, I don't know if the Trump administration has given this the thought that it deserves, um, but I think we've, they've, they've taken a move that's going to have serious repercussions um, to Israeli-Palestinian-U.S. relations. As you were talking, the thought just popped into my head. Do you think that this step perhaps makes it that much more likely that the next Democratic president will open an embassy in East Jerusalem to the Palestinian Authority? I don't know where this is all going, um, but I, I, I think that that it, I, I don't know where this is all going. I think you've asked. There's a whole other podcast that we could have now as well on um, uh, how Democrats view the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and how and how that has has evolved. Um, while I wouldn't go that far, what I could see. Uh, is that I could see that other countries may begin to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine. Uh, European countries, you know, the Arab world and Islamic countries have all sort of done that already. But will we start to see most of Europe recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine? Um, And so that, you know, there's there's a question there. Um, But I think we, you know, Trump has set in motion changes that are going to continue to have ramifications as the snowball rolls down further down the hill. Um, For years, so many of these U.S. policy issues have been frozen. Uh, He's kind of, he's loosened the boulder, it's rolling down the hill, and it's unclear where it's going to land. But but there's still more steps to come. Hattie, thank you so much for joining us for this wide-ranging conversation. My pleasure. Happy to talk to you guys again. Two weeks ago, German Chancellor Angela Merkel led a large delegation of Germans to Israel. Then, just days later, Merkel hosted an AJC delegation at the Chancellery in Berlin. Deidre Berger, director of AJC Berlin, joins us now to break down these recent events and political developments in Germany. Deidre, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be with you. Thanks. Let's talk a bit about German-Israeli relations. Chancellor Merkel has famously said that supporting Israel is part of Germany's Staatsraison, its reason for existing, in large part due to post-Holocaust considerations. But the German-Israel relationship is based on much more than just Holocaust guilt, right? Absolutely. There's a very dense network of ties today between Germany and Israel on many levels, on the business level, on the academic level, on the youth exchange level, on the cultural level, in addition, of course, to the political contacts, which remain important. 
Germany also on in many international organizations um, takes somewhat of a role to represent Israeli interests when Israel is not part of the the organization at stake. And there's close cooperation on intelligence, on military and security issues as well. So it's a very, very dense network of ties. And what was the goal of Chancellor Merkel's recent visit to Israel? It's very interesting. When Chancellor Merkel came into office, she, in 2008, several years later, she said, we need to have bilateral ties with Israel. This is a a level that Germany generally only has with neighboring countries, with Poland, with France. And she said, this relationship is so important to us as the German government that we need to bring our ministries together every year to discuss issues where we can cooperate, our common assessment um, of foreign policy, of security issues, and to keep a strong relationship. She made the announcement in the um, Knesset. It was a very powerful speech that she held. And since then, there have been quite a number of meetings. This was the seventh one. Seven doesn't translate into ten. There are tensions. Sometimes they're postponed. Um, But indeed, this was the seventh such meeting where the entire Israeli cabinet came to Israel or the Israeli cabinet came to Germany. You know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned what Chancellor Merkel said back in 2008. It reminds me of this fantastic profile of her in The New Yorker from, uh, I think, 2014. And uh, in it, they ask the leader of the Green Party, or at least the then leader of the Green Party, whether Merkel has any principles. And the quote is, she has a strong value of freedom and everything else is negotiable. And then immediately after that, the author of um, <laughs> of the piece adds, other Germans added firm support for Israel to the list. Does that accord with your understanding and engagement with Chancellor Merkel? I think that Chancellor Merkel has some principles in addition to that. But indeed, German-Israeli relations and the commitment of Germany to Israel today is a bedrock of Chancellor Merkel's really her political engagement and commitment. It means everything to her. And as long as she's chancellor, we can be quite certain that um, this is official German government policy. She emphasized again, just a few weeks ago, before going to Israel, the importance of Staatsraison. This is a term she used first in the 2008 speech in the German Knesset. It means that for Germany, Israeli security is a core vital national interest. And this is a huge pledge. Um, The Austrian Chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, at the AJC Global Forum in June made a similar pledge. It was the first time that an Austrian leader has made a pledge, 10 years after Germany. It's extremely important for Chancellor Angela Merkel that Germany continue a strong relationship with Israel. As a result, these consultations, this is the seventh time, they're a little different because she brought with her a large community of industry business executives um, to deepen the relationship and the ties economically. And another centerpiece of these consultations was the announcement that a German-Israeli youth agency is going to be set up to intensify and deepen the youth exchange between the two countries and put it on a completely different scale than up until now. There has been a lot, but it's not consistent. There's no um, central address where groups can turn to to get additional funding. And 
I think this will really step it up to the level of currently um, between Germany and France and Germany and Poland, there's also such youth exchanges and they've proven extremely valuable. So Germany's commitment to Israel was quite clear in Jerusalem, um, October 4th, when they had meetings. What's less clear, of course, is the common agreement about politics and policies. There's certainly um, disagreements about the issue of settlements, about the issue of Israel's responsibility for dealing with the Palestinians on certain human rights issues. Um, But interesting was that at these consultations, Chancellor Merkel said very clearly, yes, we have disagreements, we discuss them, but there's much more to this relationship and we want to strengthen it to make sure that there is a future, that this is not just about the Holocaust. Deidre, when we last had you on AJC Passport, you talked a bit about how Merkel, who has led Germany for 13 years, might have begun preparing her country and her party for a time after her leadership. You had mentioned the new general secretary of that party, the Christian Democratic Union, who goes by her initials, AKK. I'm not going to I'm not going to butcher her German name, but everyone calls her AKK. Just just (laughs) (laughs) just this past week, we saw elections in Bavaria that didn't turn out very well for the party affiliated with Chancellor Merkel's uh, there. So what what does that mean for the future of Germany? Is all kind of going according to plan for the CDU and Merkel, or or is this a worrying bump in the road for her? The elections in Bavaria in the end were, they were new parties, particularly worrisome is the alternative for Germany, um, a far-right-wing party. In general, the conservative vote was stable, but it's distributed now among several parties. But it was worrisome. It was worrisome um, because, in general, the large parties of German politics that have kept democracy in Germany extremely stable um, since the Federal Republic was founded in 1949 are losing support. We saw the Social Democrats, the very proud tradition, more than a century old, of the Social Democratic Party, with less than 10% of the vote in a major state in Germany. This is worrisome. We certainly don't want to see a major party falling apart. The Green Party did um, unexpectedly well with 18% of the vote. They seem to be establishing themselves as the party not just dealing with the environment, but the party of the future and the party that represents the liberal values, um, conserving liberal values, in fact, not just um, on the left, as many have seen them, um, and the party to to work with to create a stronger future. So we saw a lot of Bavarian farmers voting for the Green Party, which we haven't seen before. There's another election coming up in Germany in the state of Hessen um, in two weeks. And I think the Everyone is very concerned about what will happen there. It's not a stable moment in German politics, which is a country that is used to stability in politics compared to most European countries. You know, the main political parties in Germany, the center-right and the center-left parties, are losing support at a very rapid um, rate. On the other hand, the far-right parties that are nationalists, anti-immigration, anti-EU, are gaining support. But... They are starting to question policies on all sorts of levels. They're creating a lot of tension for NGOs, for non-governmental organizations, asking how government money is being spent and if they are being systematically kept out of um, certain forums and if their opinion isn't being represented. And it's a dilemma because we feel that, for instance, in the Jewish world, that, that many of their policies are 
disguising a certain undertone of anti-Semitism and it's open racism and yet they're democratically elected. So with what right can they be denied a place on the table? Even down to the level of schools, they're complaining now that when teachers invite representatives of different political parties, they're not being included, um, which is true very often. And they say, you have to include us as well. And they've now gone a step further and they, they're setting up platforms in different German states for students to inform on their teachers if they're not being included in the classroom. And this is frightening. This is, um, we're only at the beginning of this, but we're beginning to see an enormous impact on daily life of the surge of right-wing nationalism, populism. Um, we don't have enough statistics yet, but there seems to be a rise in racism and anti-Semitism is certainly more present than we've seen it in many years in Germany. In Germany's last election, there was a far-right party, uh, which you've mentioned a couple of times uh, over the course of our conversation, the Alternative for Deutschland, uh, or AFD party. They got 12% of the vote, well above the electoral threshold, um, and they entered the Bundestag for the first time. Now I'm seeing these kind of weird reports that this party, which, you know, I don't want to be reductionist, but it's certainly extreme far right. People have called it a neo-Nazi movement. I'll let you decide whether or not that's actually accurate. They have a group of Jewish supporters. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, it seems to be a contradiction in terms, but it's not. I mean, as a Jewish community, we certainly have a, a spectrum of political opinions within the community. It is odd. Um, it's this party alternative for Germany has been roundly condemned by the Central Council of Jews in Germany. Um, the president of the Central Council, Josef Schuster, has warned repeatedly um, for Jews to vote for a party that is anti-Muslim, anti-immigration, and sort of on a secondary level, tolerates anti-Semitism in its ranks. Um, has called for an end to religious slaughter and at a local level in Bavaria, for instance, for an end to um, circumcision, so to religious circumcision. So it is very difficult to understand why some in the Jewish community would vote for them, but there are those who believe that it's an anti-establishment signal, that it's time to get different leadership in the Jewish community. They feel frightened by the large number of um, immigrants and refugees who have poured into Germany the last four years, and they feel that this party will better represent their interests. I think it's in general for many an anti-establishment party, and it's a way of saying we see things differently. We think that um, the left has been in power too long, and we want to join these coming forces, resurgent forces on the right. But it's very small. The number of people, evidently, after it was in the in the news jumped from 20 people who founded it to 50 people. We're not talking about a very large party. There's now some signals that perhaps in the Green Party um, that there will be a new Jews, um, a Jewish faction within the Green Party as a reaction to this. There's already one in the CDU and the Social Democrats. The good news is that in general, the Jewish community in Germany um, 
is finding more of a political voice and getting more active. After World War II, these are Holocaust survivors, their children. There was a feeling of we're not here to stay, a feeling of it's temporary. And with the big immigration from the former Soviet Union, with the Russian speakers um, in Germany, the Jewish community, young people are going, they're assimilating, they're going to German universities, and they're becoming involved in the political process. So I think that there are problems, but... We're looking toward the future, and AJC is working to identify young talent in the German-Jewish community because we see them as partners and as a strong force in a Europe that, in general, is coming under many, many more problems with anti-Semitism than it did in the decades before. Well, Deidre, thank you for that crucial work and for helping us understand the goings-on in Germany. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Handwriting. Good for the Jews? The story of Kune Sugihara is not new to me. He was the vice consul at the Japanese consulate in Kaunas or Kovno, Lithuania during World War II. During the war, as the Nazis advanced toward Lithuania and the Jews there feared for their lives, Sugihara wrote out visas for thousands of Jews to leave and travel through Japan to other destinations. He issued at least 6,000 visas, and it's estimated that 40,000 people are alive today because of his heroic efforts. Those are the basics of Sugihara's story. But in an opinion piece this week in the New York Times, Rabbi David Wolpe writes at length about some of the details. Here's one thing that struck me. I don't write much by hand. I grew up in an era in which work is done at a computer screen. So I had never really thought about the physical exhaustion that writing can induce. I have friends who have taken years to get through a few hundred thank you notes after their weddings. Imagine writing 6,000 of something. Sugihara's wife, Wolpe reveals, used to massage his hands in the evenings so that he could get up the next day and write still more visas and save still more lives. I commend Rabbi Wolpe's piece to your attention. We'll link to it in the show notes. Give it a read, and I think you'll agree that handwriting is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.